Hello, everyone, and welcome to a brand new episode of Vodka O'Clock. I'm Amber Love, your host from AmberUnmasked.com. And I just want to always give thanks to the Patreon backers and the people who support and retweet those links. It's Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked to help keep my creative work going. And I do hope that you enjoy the weekly cat stories from Gus and Oliver and our cat detective agency. They have been, they're, they're so much fun to write and we've found some really disgusting things to investigate this year. So please go check those out on the website, amberunmass.com. So joining me today is Caitlin and you're going to have to help me with the whole part of your last name other yeah. than Phillips. <laughs> Caitlin Ugalik Phillips. Ugalik. Okay. Thank you, Caitlin. So I'm so glad that you could be here. We are uh, going to talk about Caitlin's book, The um, The Future of Feeling, and it's about building empathy in a tech-obsessed world. So when I picked this up, I was just like, holy cow, it was the very beginning of the coronavirus news was just barely starting. It was in other countries weren't quite paying too much attention to it. And as I'm reading, it's getting closer and closer and the walls are keeping in. And then all of a sudden here in the US, we're on COVID-19 lockdowns, as people call them lockdowns, but that makes it sound like like we're in prison. But um but you know, we have quarantine and we have curfews and we can't leave. So a lot of businesses have they've been forced to switch to remote work have it allowing people to finally work from home which should have been done ages ago and um and it's simply out of necessity and some places are simply closed and losing money so um a lot of people are out of work at the moment and i thought that through this whole experience with covid-19 and and how this country was already having so many surges in in racism and um, religious phobias and everything, I thought, well, empathy is something we are clearly lacking. So let's get into Caitlin's work and talk about how technology can either hinder or help us with our empathy. So um, I know that when you wrote this book, it was obviously well before the virus. And um, how are you handling the irony here? Yeah. Um, well, first, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this, um, especially at this time. Um, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. When I first wrote the book, when I first started researching, I was worrying about, you know, a future, I thought a distant future in which we had even less, you know, human interaction than we do now, and that it was all kind of done over the internet and that we were just like even more, as I say, tech obsessed um, than we've all already kind of become accustomed to being. And I was imagining that as something happening in 10 years and 15 years. And I didn't really think that we would have this huge social experiment um, just a few months after the book came out to see, you know, how much um, tech focused communication can we all handle and what happens when we all actually you know, don't really have a choice. And that has to be the main way that we communicate with one another. So I've definitely been thinking about that a lot. Um, I've been seeing a lot of great examples of ways that people use technology to connect with other people um, and to, you know, express empathy or to, you know, just just be able to make those connections and share empathy with one another. Um, so, you know, people are having, uh, we actually had a virtual, ha- um, a virtual birthday party for a friend the other day. You know, we all kind of connected on Google Hangouts video and saying happy birthday and <laughs> she blew out the candles. Um, I know that um, platforms like Nextdoor, which is the, neighborhood-based social network are helping connect um, older people who are afraid or can't leave their homes right now with younger, healthier people who can go run errands for them. So I see that as, you know, kind of an empathy and tech thing. Um, But yeah, 
I think irony is kind of a good word for it. And also just like, part of me was a little bit like, oh God, did I somehow (laughs) make this happen? (laughs) Um, But no, it's been, it's been very interesting. It it has. And um, as I follow so many creators, writers, artists, musicians, um, uh, there are a lot of apologies going out right now that people have to promote their work mm-hmm. um, because that's how we make we make our income and and this is all happening while other people aren't aren't having any income at all and it's and then there are projects like this where coincidentally um, they were just set to launch during all of this people you know they had their kickstarters ready to go they had to press the button and it's you know it's like such a scary time so this book in particular i don't know either you will see book sales like really surge for you <laughs> because it's so it's so um imperative right now to understand this or um just i don't know everybody's book sales maybe you're dying but since we're stuck inside i think stuck inside reading is a fabulous way to spend your time yeah a lot of people are reading um and i have seen a few people and i think you are one of them um who kind of reached out and said that you were reading the book during this time and that it felt you know um uh, poignant or prescient for these times. Um, and people just kind of sharing examples with me, like I, like I said before of, um, empathy and tech kind of coexisting. There's also a lot of examples of, um, you know, that not going so well. And something that this makes me think about a lot is so on social media in particular. So I write a lot in the book about how we, about how social media is a place where a lot of people um, want to talk about big things, want to talk about things that are happening in their lives, that are happening in politics, that are happening in the world more broadly, social justice related things, um, just like the big issues of our of our world. And, you know, I am about to turn 32. So I kind of grew up, you know, with communicating online as a normal part of my life and as did a lot of my cohort. And that feels normal to us. Um, And part of what drew me to write the book was that we, even though that felt normal to us and it was a big part of our lives, I would just notice, especially as, um, you know, in like 2014, 2015, when there were major protests happening and there was a big, um, you know, pushback against police brutality. And there was a lot of things going on. Um, these conversations that were happening on Facebook, especially, and also Twitter were just, there was something missing from them. It was like, there was a lot of talking at each other. There was a lot of sort of what I call gamification of conversations where people were just trying to win and trying to see who could, you know, post the most links in support of their argument. And um, there just wasn't empathy. I, I kind of felt like that's what was missing is that we weren't like, while these platforms help facilitate Um, the spread of awareness of certain issues and gave us a place to talk about these things. They didn't really lend themselves to the time and sort of reflection that it takes to actually show empathy when talking about these, you know, big things that affect people's lives. And so that brings me to, you know, that's obviously still an issue. And the past couple of weeks I've been watching, you know, on Twitter Um, Facebook and Instagram, this just like tension that everyone seems to be trying to walk, um, including creators, as you mentioned, between, you know, having empathy for everyone else, for people who are maybe struggling more than you are, you know, thinking before you post about like, you know, do I need to qualify what I'm about to post about my work or about, you know, this bread that I baked um, with oh, and yes, I know that this is a lot harder for other people. And we're all trying to figure out how to um, continue to support ourselves and express ourselves and also not, you know, make things harder for other people. And I think this is an issue that lives on social media and has for a decade. And I think this crisis is kind of really bringing it to to the fore, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, 
because like you said, there, there's now this influx of people. Um, like I can tell you just from personal experience, um, like my, my mom's not a Facebook person she's not on Twitter. She's not on any of this stuff and trying to set up zoom meetups for her, for us to do our, our yoga classes. It's weird how just, I mean, I used to be a database designer and really what I consider pretty tech fluent in things like, oh, let's click here. Everything's, a you know, basically a GUI interface. So it's like you can figure stuff out, click the microphone for this, click the camera button for this. And we can't get, you know, shit to work here in, in tech, technology. And it's, uh, you know, and I've seen that. Like currently just we're recording, we're using Zencaster and Zencaster put out a nice email saying, wow, we are having such an overload Mm -hmm. of activity that the quality might be down a little bit. But, you know, so between Zoom and Skype and all of these things, it's like brand new to this whole new population of people. And at the same time, so it's like, uh, we're constantly apologizing for something, but you know, and then it's, it, you know, I have privilege. I have computers in my house. Other people don't have computers in their houses. I've got like a computer and a Kindle. So it's like, you know, I, there's just feels to be a lot of guilt um, or blame that there's some kind of, I don't know, you're either on one side or the other, and maybe it just changes day to day as people, you know, we go, we go through our nervous system cycles. We go from our um, like central nervous system and then our autonomic nervous system. And we go into our, our parasympathetic nervous system, which is when we're relaxed. And it's like, sometimes we're just out of that window of tolerance and I think that people are really out of their window of tolerance right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my therapist calls it um, discomfort tolerance. And actually we, we yeah. had a, we had a virtual session yesterday and we talked about this, about um, that for, she was actually saying a lot of people who don't have kids, I will clarify. I uh-huh. am one of those people who doesn't have kids, but a lot of people who are at home right now are kind of like, Oh, I almost feel freer like I'm kind of enjoying this at this point um and and then the guilt that comes with that when you remember why you're doing that and um you know we kind of talked about that and how it's normal to feel that way but um it's just a weird balance this is an unprecedented thing that none of us have experienced before and then on top of that you have this phenomenon of compassion fatigue or empathy fatigue which um I also touch on a little bit in the book not too much but it's this um, idea that's been studied a lot where, you know, when you have, so I use the example of baby Jessica in the eighties. Um, there right. was this, people are probably it was like on all the time. Yeah. Yes. This little girl fell down a well and um, you know, she became, it became this sensation and it was 24. It, it was kind of the early days of 24 hour news. And so everyone knows who baby Jessica is. Um but then people talk about, you know, famines in Africa or, um, you know, major, the, you know, kind of ongoing everyday poverty that happens in the United States or, you know, gun violence that doesn't have to do with, you know, one officer involved shooting, but that kills, you know, thousands of people all the time. Those things are harder for our brains to comprehend um, when it's, you know, more than one person whose story we can like really put ourselves into. Um, and that, that, uh, becomes an issue. You know, you're, you're, it's kind of, it's, it's a defense mechanism that our brains kind of put up to, to avoid burnout and to avoid, you know, intolerance, um, in the way that you're talking about, like just to be able to keep going, you can't, you can't fully empathize with every person who's suffering and then you kind of get numb. So, and this is something that a lot of healthcare workers deal with anyway. And right now I've been thinking a lot about how, how this is affecting them. This like, you know, I'm sure a lot of them are seesawing back and forth between extreme empathy and burnout. You know, you can't be at this like high level of, you know, perspective taking all the time because then you have no energy to 
continue to live yourself. Yeah, absolutely true. And uh, it's, it's interesting because even before the internet was in every home, televisions were pretty much in every home. So, uh, you know, even during 9-11, I remember my psychiatrist at the time telling me, he's like, he's like, you've got to stop watching. You've got to stop it. And mm. it, because I was a complete and total wreck all the time. And that's, and I, it's like the way other people watch the stock market ticker. Mm-hmm. That's how, how I felt like I was watching the news. Yep. And, and I, I completely relate. <laughs> yeah. So I remember when I messaged you and, and I said something about, Oh, and I've tried to give people this 8 PM deadline because um, mm-hmm. I try to help out with everybody else going through their, you know, their, through technology hookups as we're trying to experiment and try this stuff for the first time. And I'm like, just, you know, try to not bother me after eight o'clock. <laughs> you know? Like I need to have a cutoff time. Let me just play my silly cat games on my Kindle. And, um, you know, I can just like f- find my jewels in the secret hiding place or whatever <laughs> games. And, um, no, you that's know, necessary in order I to need, need to just let my brain do something else where yeah. my brain's working, but not like thinking working. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, and I think that's important because people are getting, they're not taking the breaks or that when they take the breaks, they have that guilt. And it's like, you, you can't know everything about every place in the world. 100% of the time, we right. are not machines that way. Right. And another and, thing is that with news like this, where there's like an ongoing constant thing happening, it can sometimes feel like every time there's a new, like if you're on Twitter, for example, and every time you see a new article, you have to read it, but it's all the same information a lot of the time, but it's like the more you read it, the more urgent it feels. And I've been just telling myself, you know, okay, today I know what's going on. I don't need to reread 15 articles about the same thing today. (laughs) Like I get it and I will read again tomorrow. The news will come out tomorrow. I will know what's going on and then I will, you know, do other things because yeah, it's just, it's definitely a difficult balance of, you know, you have to see what, what serves you and what actually allows you to be a functioning member of society in in any way, or, you know, just, of your family. Um, and this actually also makes me think of, so Paul Bloom is a, um, Yale psychologist who wrote a book called against empathy. Um, it came out, I think at the end of 2018. Um, and he argues that at like a more macro scale, empathy is not what we need because of all these things that you and I are talking about right now, because it, he he argues that it's biased because we it's easier for us to empathize with people who are like us, um, which I think there's something to that. Um, and then that it can be overwhelming in the ways that we're describing. Um, so he argues that at a macro scale, so with governing and um, running organizations, that compassion, so just like the acts of empathy essentially are more important than um, the perspective taking. And, you know, I, I, I argue, well, kind of a one-sided argument (laughs) with him a little bit in my book, um, because I think that at at an individual level, you know, empathy is still extremely important, but he, he, you know, has done a lot of important research and makes really good points about that. I think are relevant to a situation like we're in right now, where you have that fine line to walk between empathy and being so overwhelmed by other people's experiences that you can't function. Yeah, I completely understand that. And, and I like your perspective, um, because it, it humanizes us. uh, But at the same time, like you said, um, the first responders and other people, they, they do have to, at times dehumanize. Do you, do you listen to um, my favorite murder by any chance? No. So (laughs) because I I am such a like perspective taker, I have to avoid stuff like that. (laughs) Okay. So this is, this is why I find it interesting and wanted to bring it up because at the beginning of their episodes, they talk about how they as 
presenters. Um, I, in a way, they're journalists. They probably don't call themselves journalists, but um, they're entertainers and they are talking about these stories that are horrific. And at the same time, they're make they have to make some some jokes, you know, and they lighten the mood and they make it entertaining. And they they specifically say, um, you know, they try to explain. I mean, anyway, that they're not doing this to be insensitive, and that if it's just not your thing, then just don't listen. But it's but it's important for them to say that because I think you know if you if you were the coroner on every single scene you know, at some point you are looking at something as a body and not as always the person, or you would be overwhelmed with so much grief, you wouldn't be able to do your job effectively. So even though you have to approach things with respect and acknowledge that, yes, this is a person we're talking about, or, you know, this is a whole population of people that we're talking about now that now who are sick. At, at some point, those folks in those jobs have to still be able to function and do their do their jobs so it's got to be really really hard um because like you said there's there was the talk in the news cycle about um sending people back to work because our economy is collapsing and like you know and it seems like how is that an option but other people are like yes let's get back to work (laughs) this was this was a fascinating thing for me the other day so I was working you know I'm working from home I I have a full-time job um, doing editing for a health policy journal and so I'm you know working on that I'm editing things and then I checked Twitter a couple of times and so I wasn't fully paying attention but then I kind of at the end of the day I real I like kind of got a sense of what the of of the back and forth that was happening on Twitter and I was like are we really having this conversation like people were there were kind of these two camps of like you know the economy, you know, it's worth it for if we just let a few people die for the economy to come back online. And then people who were saying like, that is, you know, how dare you suggest such a thing. And I was, I I read a couple of threads that were essentially trying to get people to empathize with people who, you know, small businesses that are closing and people who are losing their jobs and things like that. And I like from an outside perspective, I found that so interesting because it reminded me that empathy is a tool, right? Just like technology is a tool and that it's really about making choices about whose perspective you're taking and which, which perspective you decide to take when can really say a lot about, you know, your priorities. And I was just fascinated by this back and forth and how, and it reminded me of the conversations I saw in 2014 and 2015 that led me to write the book where it was like both sides believe that they are correct. They, and they're not, I don't, I don't know, like, because it's still happening. I haven't wrapped my mind fully around it, but like, there's just so much going on there. And um, it, it was just fascinating. Yeah. And it, it, it's also there, there's having conviction in what, in what you believe. Um, and especially every time we come around to an election cycle, which we're in, seems like it's always happening here. Mm-hmm. Um you know, some terms are two years, some terms are four years, and they alternate, and it's just like worse than, than trying to follow the Olympics. Um, the there's there's honest to God hacking. There's honest to God incorrect information or extremely skewed where something in it might have a truthful statement, and then a lot of like additional stuff that's meant to be biased and Mm -hmm. that stuff gets out and it affects the whole world and it affects the elections. And, um, it's, there's so much yelling or, or what is, is my perception of yelling through social media at places like, you know, Facebook, like you had a role in this. You had a big role, maybe not you thinking as like you, an individual person, Mark Zuckerberg, but you, your staff, everybody that runs this platform has something to do with 
what happened. And Twitter is the same way where they just allow people, you know, they say freedom of speech, but on the other hand, some of that speech is, is completely made up. And it's like, at what point are you talking to a brick wall when you try to, to correct when you see something happening, like your Mm -hmm. empathy is there and you're like, no, what people need is truth. They need resources. They need, um, you know, they need polling places. They need clean water. They, whatever the situation is, um, is there a step to the, to really begin the correction process? So I think the step is to not try to correct <laughs> at an individual level. I think I've been very convinced by um, a lot of the research I've seen showing that trying to change someone's mind is going to do the opposite. So, you know, we, you know, at least the current social science shows that we are kind of hardwired to dig our heels in and we're hardwired for Um, confirmation bias, to find things that support our views, and that when someone calls us out and says, you're wrong, our gut is to say, no, actually, I'm right. Especially in the, you know, seemingly, it feels high stakes, urgent, rapid fire environment of a place like social media. Um, And because of how public it is, like if you, if someone posts something that's clearly false, and you respond in a comment, you know, and they know that everybody else can also see that comment. So now instead of worrying about what you're saying, they're worried that you've said something and they have to defend themselves and it, you know, becomes this whole, you know, it's not productive. I've seen the most ridiculous things. um, And this is just like in the comic industry level where someone who's angry will somehow find an exact tweet from five years ago that somebody said and bring it up and start arguing about it. And, you know, the creator will be like, look, first of all, probably taken out of context. Second of all, I already addressed that issue. I've already apologized for that issue. Um, I'm in a different place right now. We're all in a different place. You know, it's like how unbelievable it is that people put like they invest so much of themselves into trying to, you know, win this game, as you put it, you gamify the, 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 yeah. the outlet. I think I there's mean, that, but then there's also the person who, so, you know, the person whose tweet it was right now, they say that they, that, you know, they are the one who actually posted something that was misleading or incorrect. Um, you know, that way of responding to it is not going to make them want to listen to your argument that um, that they posted something misleading, right? Like exactly. And I think what I've what I've found from you know a lot of the research that I've read and a little bit of personal experience is that if if you're really concerned about something like that, the best thing to do is to you know either publicly or privately, but probably privately, um, ask questions, like try to understand why this person believes this thing. Or, and a lot of times you'll find that they say, like, this has happened to me so many times. Oh yeah. I didn't actually read the article. I just thought the headline was interesting or Mm -hmm. like, Oh yeah. Okay. You're probably right. Ha ha. Like who cares? Um, sometimes it'll be more of like, you know, they'll, they'll actually have an interesting reason for, why they believe what they believe and then being able to understand, you know, where the person is coming from is a, is I think the best way to try and influence them if that's what you want to do. So like being able to understand, even if you don't agree, you know, just being able to identify, okay, this person had this path of thoughts to get to where they are. And it isn't just this crazy out of nowhere thing. Now I can, you know, see where we overlap and see what we might have in common and then kind of go from there. I think that's 
actually the best way, but that takes time and it takes empathy and it takes energy. <laughs> it's I was very going hard. to ask it. Yeah, I was absolutely going to bring that up because, um, you know, I'm all for using the mute, the mute and the block buttons. Mm, right. Um, Sometimes are, that's actually the best thing you can do. <laughs> if, if you know, if you know, you're not going to change somebody's mind and mm. there is no conversation to be had. Right then there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with using the block button. I, you know, I did encounter this a couple of weeks ago where, uh, you know, I was explaining a traumatizing situation and, and a very emotional situation. And so people, a few people were starting to come at me, like in that typical, why should we believe you? Why are you talking about this now sort of way? And I just went, look, clearly you don't understand trauma. Okay. It takes me me personally, years sometimes to get to the point where I'm going to talk about something. And after having studied trauma a bit, I understand that that's normal, that some people might go literally decades before they're ready to talk about something that was traumatizing. And so I just snapped back at somebody and said, clearly, you don't understand trauma. And he was just like, "Um, yeah, actually, I do, because I've, you know, gone through this abuse and that abuse. And I was like, oh, okay, well, then let's talk. But that's, I was willing to talk to him. Whereas there were other people, I was just like, screw you, block. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you're just coming at me because I'm saying something bad about somebody you like. And, um, you know, shining the light on on a subject. And, you know, there, it was very clear as to who was willing to have a conversation and who was not. And that's also some, like you, we've talked about bias a little bit. Um, you know, the, the people that I know out there in the trans community, I mean, they don't have the same privilege I have as a cis white woman. So, you know, when the trolls go after them, you know, they're not going to have the ability and the resources to sit there and try to educate every single person who comes at them. And, and right. you know, when, when people have that conviction, they, they make your, you know, something like your sexuality or your gender, they make it political by, you know, by basically saying you're not a person mm-hmm. or whatever insult they want to come at and, and you're not going to change their mind. You're never going right. to change their mind. So yeah, use, use that block button. But that's why I'm, I'm amazed at this section that you have in the book about this podcaster, um, Dylan Marin, who like invites his trolls on his show. I'm like, mm-hmm. I was reading that and I was like, are you nuts? I know. And I don't know if you've like, read no um, Lindy West's book, Shrill. Um, she I also, read Shrill, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it talks about that. So I... Um, yeah, I want to say this comes up in like every interview, which I think is interesting because, yeah, it really impacted me as well listening to that podcast. But one thing that I want to make clear is that I don't think that everyone needs to do that. You know, like Dylan felt empowered to do that, to to have these people, you right. know, come on to his show and he, you know, laid ground rules and said, we're not going to debate. We're just going to get to know each other. We're just going to talk. And it didn't always go well. And, you know, but, but, you know, he, he knew what he was getting into and he felt comfortable with that. I know that I would not feel comfortable doing that. And a lot of people wouldn't. And I, if, you know, if anything else, I want to make sure that people don't think that I'm, advocating for only one because I feel like this is an issue is that one side of these conversations is always the one being encouraged to have empathy and it's the side that's being attacked (laughs) and I want to make sure that it's clear that I that I'm talking about everyone trying to use empathy but not I don't mean that in like, oh, you know, just try and understand why this person's being horrible to you and then forgive them and it'll be okay. I I just think it's useful to, if you have the energy and if you're ready to do this, it's useful to try and take the person's perspective, not so that you can be okay with the way they're acting or forgive them, but just because for some people, understanding to a certain extent helps helps with closure or helps get through it or helps 
or helps you not care as much about what they're saying. I mean, it depends on the person, but what Dylan does is he has these people come on and, you know, who have made horrible, who have left him horrible comments on his YouTube channel. And I listened to the first episode and I write about this in the book. This guy says this horrible thing and, um, he doesn't really seem to understand what the issue was, but he apologizes for saying it. And then you kind of get to know him. You get to know about his career and his family. And, you know, they, they talk to each other about things they have in common. And, um, I, I did not leave feeling sympathy for this man. I did not leave the podcast feeling like I, like it was okay that he did what he did, but, it humanized him to me, which mm-hmm. did something to my anger. And he hadn't done this to me. So obviously it was different, but I would have just seen him. Like I went into it, seeing him as just like a jerk who doesn't care about anyone, has no empathy, like whatever, you know, he purposely wanted to hurt this person's feelings. And then he tells this story about how he was kind of drunk and depressed and he, just you know didn't really mean it it just kind of happened and he didn't realize that anyone was really gonna see it or care and that just kind of both humanized him and made it made me feel something other than anger and then also I mean listening to someone like Dylan express empathy for someone like that who's been so horrible to him even if I don't feel capable of doing that just listening to it I think um you know at least worked yeah it's inspiring and it worked out my empathy muscle in a new way (laughs) yeah and and I feel like even you know there's so much there's so much judgment that goes on and we're all guilty of it and and everything but like people coming down so hard on Ellen DeGeneres for being friends with George Bush. Like it's, uh, you know, first of all, that's their relationship and you, you know, who the hell knows. And and once somebody retires from a, a position as powerful as the presidency, um, you know, sometimes they are a better person. Like Jimmy Carter is the most amazing person. He might not have been an effective politician, but he he's probably the best post presidency person that we can that we can imagine so it's you know there's there's just so much judgment and at the you know like you said we're none of us are you know these pure absolutely blameless individuals like we've all done our own shit and um so the troll that comes after you thinks that you're the troll to them at the same time. Right. So, right. <laughs> you know, so it's, you know, it's awkward and it's hard. And there's this, um, one of the things that I, I talk about in my classes a lot is um, it comes from Buddhism, but it's a, it's still a secular practice is um, called loving kindness mm-hmm. and you do it in, in steps. So first you, you work on yourself and you, you know, you wish yourself well, you wish yourself health or whatever, you know, common things. You might hear it a lot. May you be happy. May you be healthy. So first you focus on yourself and then you focus, you take it to the next step and you, you talk uh, you, that, that energy, you take it and you think about a neutral person. And eventually you get to the point where in the older texts, what they referred to as enemy, but enemy is a strong word. It could just be somebody that you're having a difficult issue with, whether it's a coworker, family member, you know, romantic, whatever it is, could be a neighbor that you're having a feud with. Um, and at some point you have to take that, you know, may you be happy, may you be healthy. And over time, it'll start to work its way through as you're envisioning this other person. And just imagine if that person that you hate or just can't stand, however, whatever your level of rage is against that person, imagine that person building their empathy and wouldn't, wouldn't your world, wouldn't the world as a whole be better if 
they really did have more empathy. So there's nothing wrong with wishing empathy or wishing loving kindness towards people you disagree with, mm-hmm. you know? And, yeah. and, and like, you know, maybe it'll work. Maybe something will happen. Maybe somehow they'll, they'll have an experience that'll change who they are. I don't know, but it's, you know, it's a practice that I, I do all the time. And, and it does, when you get there, you can start to open your eyes a little bit and say, yeah, we're all people. And, you know, there's a difference in maybe somebody had a bad day and was a troll versus somebody who's perpetually abusing somebody else. But, um, but you can get to that point where you just don't care so much where they're not, they're not holding that taking up space rent free, as they say inside Mm -hmm. your head. Mm -hmm. And I love that saying, because it's so true. It's like, oh yeah, I went like days without thinking about that person. Yeah. I love the loving kindness meditations. I do though. I, I do that as well, especially when, I mean, I usually remember to do it, especially when, um, you know, I'm having a difficult time with someone in my life and I take that challenge. And sometimes it is a real challenge to send loving kindness toward that person. And like you said, sometimes it, it's not that that you necessarily think it's going to change their behavior, but you just don't, I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, you just don't care because you know right. that you, how you feel about it, it helps you adjust your level of empathy toward that person. And then it just kind of frees you from obsessing about, you know, why they did what they did or, or what's going to happen next. Yeah. It's really powerful. I, yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah. That, that's the exact word freeing. It's so freeing. Um, and, uh, and it's, and I understand that there might be actual like medically explained reasons why someone may not have empathy. Um, but aside from that, if we're talking about neurotypical levels, of, of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you remember this because I don't know if the commercial actually ran very long. It got so much flack, but it might've been Excedrin. It was, it was some pharma company where um, they created a, a virtual reality device for people who didn't suffer from migraines to put on to give them the experience of a migraine so that they could better understand what their family member was going through. And I was so shocked at the backlash from my fellow pain patient friends that they were so upset about this saying, not that, Oh, you created a device that tortures people, but essentially they were, they considered it a, a violation because they would rather simply be believed as as human beings for who they are in their own words and their and explaining their own experiences than having to have some company build this VR device so that all of these other people can validate and go, oh yeah, you do feel like garbage. Yep. You this know, has like, come I, up so much in the in 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 conversations about the book too, because I write a lot about VR. Um and yeah, this is this is a really common thing and I think it's I totally get that, right? Like you Yeah. You shouldn't like have you to. just want to be believed. You shouldn't have to, but it's to me, I thought it was a great invention. I was like I was like, yeah, isn't that amazing? Like, I would love to have something that I could put on and tell me, you know, where my pet is hurting or what's going on, you know, like if, if the, especially for something that the communication isn't there, you know, if you could imagine, um, and obviously I have no idea where this, the technology is or, or how the different machines they hook up to people what that really tells them. But if you, let's say to have somebody who's catatonic or in a coma, but at the same time, they're in extreme amount of pain and you don't know it, mm-hmm. you know, if there's a machine telling you, Hey, their pain receptors are going off bonkers right now. Like, isn't that good? Like you, you know, can't, then that can be treated. You know, 
Yeah, I think it it depends so much on. Yeah, I think it depends so much on who the experience is for and like how it's made. So I write in the book about some medical, um, some medical simulation things similar to what you're talking about. And there is debate about, you know, um, especially actually outside of the medical field, but in like the experiencing racism um, types of VR experiences where it's like, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to experience this to understand what the problem is. And that I 100%, you know, totally makes sense with the medical stuff. I think if you're a doctor, you know, doctors do simulation exercises all the time. I could definitely see a benefit of a medical professional, you know, adding this, this level of empathy, you know, like you said, being like, if, if that's the person who is doing it, if it's, if it's just like, oh, the general public needs some help caring about, you know, people who are suffering. So why don't they pretend to be blind for a few minutes? I could see how that's, you know, come on. Like, we actually (laughs) did that. We did that in grade school. It was, it was an exercise. Mm -hmm. We had to we had to spend um, like a few minutes or, or whatever, like watching a TV show without um, the visuals, then mm-hmm. watching the TV show without the audio and, um, and just, you know, describing the experience. And this, you know, maybe for young kids, that sort of thing makes sense because you do address, which I think is amazing that you dress, address how if we start sooner in the lifetime of somebody, then they will have developed that empathy and they can, they can mature with that empathy. So, you know, it's probably an exercise that a lot of people would find upsetting, but at the same time, if you have to take the audience into consideration, you're talking about seven-year-olds or something like, right. you know, and I also it help them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that I, that, you know, a lot of young people, um, I mean, a lot of educators are trying to do more of that, um, you know, teaching empathy at younger ages. And also I think another thing that really matters is in the creation of those kinds of exercises and specifically, you know, the VR and other technology that um, is used for that purpose, it's important to include the people who actually experience those things. So, you know, if you're creating something about what it's like to be in a wheelchair, like you should probably have someone uh, on the developer side who, I mean, you have to have someone who actually knows what that's like. Otherwise, I think that's part of the complaint that people have with a lot of these things is like, you're just guessing at what this is like for me. And you could have just asked me. And so I know that there are some disability activists who are like, you know, we shouldn't do simulation at all. But there are some who say, call me, pay me to be on, to be at the table helping create this um, so that at least you get it right. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, and it, it, it happens and there's so much that we can learn from fiction and science fiction. And Mm. at the same time, there are these instances where they get it so incredibly wrong. Um, I remember when they were, you know, in comics, they start and stop and restart the characters all the time to keep them at a certain age. So it's like, nobody ever gets to be 60. They always like reboot and go back to their 20s. And when um, Batgirl, who was one of the Batgirls anyway, Barbara Gordon, was then Um, restarted and removed from her wheelchair the that decision struck people so emotionally because here was this character that they had gotten to know and accept for who she became and then all of a sudden it's like oh boom the magic of comics she's all better and you know a lot of people with whether they're whether it's a disability or being neuroatypical whatever it is that makes somebody different the moment they find a character that represents them and they hang on to then they're like killed off or something you know like it happens to the gay characters all the time if there's a gay character you know they're going to be the one that gets killed off Mm. um it's 
you know, so it's fiction can profoundly help us or really screw something up. And I know that um, recently it was announced that the character Daredevil, and it's, it, I don't think it's a comic book project. I think it's some other version of the, the character is finally going to have um, someone who I've interviewed on the show before, Elsa Sonjensen, is going, she's, she's a blind person. She's going to finally get to write Daredevil. It's a character she's given like lectures about because people don't understand blindness. And um, so it was sort of this dream come true to course correct this character who had so much meaning and legacy behind him. I think, I think what you said is just like so dead on, like definitely have somebody on that developer team that knows the perspective. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's so important. And that's like, you know, at the end of my book, I ended up, I didn't plan this, but I ended up getting on my soapbox for the last chapter and just kind of saying that like tech companies, older ones, newer ones, um, creating new, any kind of new tech product, whether it's used for a simulation or not, whether it's a VR or not, there needs to be, there needs to be more of a variety and a diversity of people, you know, on race, on gender, on geography, income, ability, at the table, creating things. Because I think part of the problem is that a lot of the media that we see and a lot of the technology that we use is created by a kind of homogenous group of people. And by default, not necessarily by, you know, from malice, but just by default, that experience is limited to one um, or a, a handful of experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And it's important to diversify the writer's room and the, you know, the artists uh, when it comes to comics. Um, I've seen a lot of criticism about how just how they uh, how someone who has um, whether they're African-American or or actually in Africa or whatever, the like the hairstyles get so botched um or the wardrobes get completely screwed up and the language mm. it's you know there's so much to be said for well you tried um you know a for effort but you missed the mark yeah but i think with with technology at this point we've gotten beyond that you know like you were saying like with facebook and um these other platforms like you know, we're beyond, okay, good job. You tried. (laughs) Yeah. You have billions and billions and billions of dollars. There's no reason that you, you can't hire the right people for the job, you know? And that seems insane. Like how many of these huge companies didn't have any female executives. And then finally, like, I don't know, Facebook had one and, um, that one, oh, I think it was Facebook. Anyway, she wrote that book Lean In or something. And it's oh, like, yeah. Everybody that Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah. 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 And, um, or then you have somebody at Google and when she does speak up, her life becomes so miserable. They, you know, they inevitably leave. And, um, it's, it's just that glass ceiling is there, not just, you know, for gender, but for all these other biases. And it's like, you finally, somebody finally pioneers their way through and like Hillary Clinton or Elizabeth mm-hmm. Warren, yeah. you know, they, you finally pioneer your way through and it's like, oh no, how do, how can we look at this as not a failure and, um, and make change there, you know, it's, it's so hard, as you said, we might not be able as individuals to change these huge companies um but there was occupy wall street which you know the first time i heard about it i thought it was like 20 people sitting in a park like and then i saw these um images that people were posting and uh, and i was like holy cow like people really stood up for this like occupy was this movement that i did not expect Yeah, I think Black Lives Matter is another example. You know, at first it seemed like it was just located in one spot. And then we haven't heard that much about it lately, but I I know that they are um, 
there is still a big network of, you know, community organizers that that has, you know, evolved into and that they've been registering people to vote. And, you know, so there is, yeah, there is definitely power in, um, in connection and movement. And those things started on Twitter. Yeah, you know, absolutely. and Facebook. Okay. So yeah, I think we, we don't, we need to not discount that, but um, we are still trying to figure all this out <laughs> as we go. We are, we are. And, and I slide so much back into fiction or science fiction, because it seems like inventions come from there at some point, you know, like the cell phone. And, um, you know, I was thinking as I was reading through your book and, and we're thinking about all oh, these devices that can give people the experiences of someone else like you um like you were saying you can go into somebody else's home in another country where you can look down and your hands aren't white anymore your hands are now a little black boy who's just trying to take the bus and the police stop him and whatever and and I was thinking of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where they have that gun that shoots your feelings into someone else mm-hmm. and it's like all of a sudden you know the man starts understanding what it's like this woman's feelings are. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And I was just like, I was like, Oh my God, how long ago was this book written? And, 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 um, you know, and these things are finally scientifically coming around and and being real. Yeah. But, but we need to think about the potential positive and negative um, impacts of that. And I, and, you know, before, before it's too late, before, you know, everybody's already doing it. Yeah. And, um, and I think there is so much of that, like, while we're in this quarantine situation, um, when it came to Black Lives Matter, there, you know, the people around me were just like, oh, well, we're so unaffected. And we live in this, you know, little tiny town of mostly white people. Um, There aren't protests here. And it's like, well, no, but I guarantee you, if I drive five minutes, I'll find protesters in front of the Planned Parenthood, like I always do. Mm-hmm. Um, there, like, there's things that affect you if you open your eyes and look. Like, maybe, like, why aren't there, you know, more diverse statistics in this area? And what does it look like when you're standing in the election poll line? Like, who do you see there? Is it just people that look like you? Um, you know, it's. Uh, so yeah, being being connected, it can be truly eye opening if you're you're looking. If you're just following people that are just like you, then you need to diversify your feed. Absolutely, mm-hmm. step number one: diversify your feed. Yep, I absolutely agree. That's what I've been telling. You know, I did a lot of radio interviews, and they all asked me, you know, what can people do? And it's so hard because you these are such big problems, and there's you know people feel like they can't take much action but that is definitely one thing that everyone can do um you know there's a lot of research showing that just reading novels and reading you know including like a lot of the sci-fi you've been talking about or any novels helps build empathy because you are taking the perspective of another person and that that's not a real person but on instagram for example you can do that with real people (laughs) you know you can yeah i mean you know people People curate what they post, but um, following folks whose lives are different from yours, not necessarily just people who are like politically different from you, but just someone who's a different race or lives in a different part of the world or has a different experience. That's, you know, definitely a place to start. And that's why I really love the power behind some of the hashtags when um, it'll be like, you know, I don't, I don't remember what it was, but it was, um, so every once in a while a hashtag will come through and it'll just be like you know black women you know in science or black women in um in the arts and all of a sudden I'm just like you know going through this whole thread and just like follow 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 and it's amazing to get to that point and you know and because of the way that technology works, once it starts noticing that you're hitting these follow buttons, mm. those people you should follow thing that appears on the side will start to change. Because if I type in comic books, it's just going to keep showing me like white dudes. Right. You know, so it's like the second I start following like trans creators, all of a sudden it's making completely different suggestions for who to follow. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a really, it's really interesting to see how those algorithms change and affect us. Yeah. And I mean, and, and there is science tied to it. I, I was um, listening to a show about the, the ancestry tests, the like 23andMe or whatever, the DNA tests. Mm -hmm. And that, yes, on the, um, if you're just reading about it, it seems like, oh, this scientific way to analyze your DNA and this is what we have. But their databases are still so heavily based on European white people. Yes, that's true. That, that, you know, someone might be mostly, I don't know, Polynesian or something. And it's like not going to have enough percentage. It's not going to have a real percentage until they get more Polynesian people into their database. So um, I, I think one of the, I think the podcast, it might've been Science Versus, which is a great podcast. Um, it, it's, it's like the technology is only as good as the people developing it. And technology does take time to catch up. So even if it's when it comes to something like analyzing your blood, just know that those results are going to be skewed mm -hmm. <laughs> and you might actually have, you know, maybe you're from, you have family that's from India and it's going to tell you that you're from Hungary. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's really strange. It has to, it has to get there, but they're, you know. It, it takes so much time for it to catch up to a, a nice, you know, diverse place. So what can we do to inspire people to, to get their empathetic feelings into action? Well, um, you know, I think what we just talked about with following people who are not like you is a great place to start. Um, also reading and what, and just consuming media from people who are different from you. Um, but then also when you, so those are ways I think to inspire, but then there are also just things you can do, you know, back to the beginning of our conversation. If, if you're on social media in particular right now and you get triggered by something, you get angry, you get upset, and you feel like you need to respond immediately, just trying to train yourself to take a breath first and see if you can try and take, you know, the other person's perspective. And in that, in that moment of doing that, you might decide that you kind of get where they're coming from. You might also decide that like, responding is not actually going to be useful for you or them. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah, I just think uh, that has been probably the most influential and beneficial thing that I've done since I've learned more about my own um, relationship with social media and ever, you know, just the general way that we all interact there is like, thinking a little bit more, just adding that like few seconds to think like, well, well, I feel like I need to do this. Do I really need to do this? And where is that person coming from? And do I want to get into this? Or is that just something that I don't? Um, because it doesn't always have to be like, let me try to understand this person and put all of this emotional energy into this. Sometimes it's just like, oh, realizing that that's what is ahead of you and then deciding that you don't need to take that on. Yeah. I, I think it's important that you need to preserve your own health at, mm -hmm. at times. Um, so Caitlin, before I let you go, as we, we talk about the future of feeling building empathy in a tech obsessed world, it's available now. Um, now that we're living through the quarantine times, um, I don't know what this era will end up being called, but are you going to have more to say on this subject? I don't know. I've been thinking about that. <laughs> I've written a couple of <laughs> newsletters um, and sent those out. I just feel like I'm not sure if I have anything new to say, but I've been interesting seeing how other people are um, experiencing this and sharing their stories. And I just think that um, what I've said already in the book, I feel more confident in I guess um, but it'll be interesting I mean I'm, I'm on week two here so we'll see what happens over the next few weeks 
Great. And um, so the book is available in um, it's, if you have Kindle Unlimited, because you've been reading a lot during this quarantine, it's um, it's up there on Kindle Unlimited as for free. Um, but if you need to get it somewhere else, if you can order it through a small book retailer, then that's great. Help keep them going. Um, Caitlin, where can people follow you um, and get your newsletter, for example? Um, so if you go to thefutureoffeeling.com, um, or CaitlinUgalik.com, you can sign up for my newsletter. And um, I'm on Twitter at CaitlinUgalik, that's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-U-G-O-L-I-K. That's great. Is there anything you want to put out there before we wrap things up? Uh, just, you know, be kind to yourself and your loved ones that you're cooped up with in this crazy time. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, you know, I'm, I'm always cooped up with my loved ones. It seems like so. Yeah. Um, take a walk. That's my advice. Yes. The, um, I don't, I'm not in a tornado zone like some people I've seen. So um, yeah. I, I have that, I have that privilege too, where I can uh, at least go out, take a walk every day. So if you have that opportunity, then get out and enjoy some fresh air and, and turn off your um, your social media, like just go into airplane mode for a while. Um, yeah, I think that's good advice. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. You guys can, um, help support the show and my work at patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked. And if there's anything else you need to know, you can find me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. And everything else is at amberunmasked.com, including all of the cat detective stories. Once the Patreon backers read them first, they get unlocked and you can read them all there. So um, take care, everybody. Stay well, stay healthy, stay inside as long as you need to. Bye.